We uh, are going to be talking about the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And what we want to do first is to put ourselves in the historical context so that we can better understand. We're not going to get very far in the letter itself today. We're going to be looking at two verses. But we're going first to look at the historical context. Now, each of you should have a sheet that has a number of questions on it. If I do my job well, uh, you should be able to answer all those questions, but if we have time towards the end of it, we'll go over some of those questions together. But as we look at this, uh, these, um, let me make sure this is on first. It's not? Oh, it is. Yes. Okay. Now it's on. Okay, so what we're going to try to do is piece together the history of the Philippian church and Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. So uh, we begin with his what we call his second missionary journey. And on his second missionary journey, he was traveling through Asia Minor, which is uh, Turkey nowadays. And I think this actually has a pointer somewhere. There it is. So uh, beginning here in Jerusalem and then Antioch sent out from Antioch, he gets to the town of Lystra. And in the town of Lystra, he comes across a young man who had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And the young man's name was Timothy. And uh, Timothy, he saw faith that had come down, uh, passed on through generation after generation in Timothy's life, saw faith in Timothy. Timothy received the gospel, believed, and joined up with Paul and Silas as they continued across Asia Minor. Well, they continued across to the west, and they come to Troas, and they bumped into the sea. And then we have a curious situation in which they wanted to go into, this is in, um, in Acts chapter 15 and into chapter 16, and it says that they wanted to go into Asia. Now, when it says they wanted to go into Asia, Asia was a province of Asia Minor. And so we think of Asia as an entire continent, but it was a, it was a province of Asia Minor, which is nowadays Turkey. And it says, curiously, that the Holy Spirit didn't let them. It didn't let them. And so they were boxed in, they ran into the sea, and they uh, were trying to go, uh, staying in Asia Minor, and, um, and uh, um, that they weren't able to stay there. But then Paul had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a man from Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is what we would call Greece, but it was this northern part of Greece. So Achaia down here is Greece, and Macedonia was the northern part of Greece. And he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And we learn that uh, he decided that they should cross the sea and they should begin ministry on the other side. So here, Paul has his vision. And also, something interesting happens. Now, Acts doesn't tell us this specifically, but Luke joined them. How do we know that Luke joined them? Dr. Luke. Well, Luke was the author of the Gospel of Luke, very good, and he was also the author of Acts of the, Epist Acts of the Apostles. Now, when you're reading through, you will find that when the narrative is going on, sometimes you'll find that the person who's writing it, Luke, uses third-person plural, and he says, they did this, they did that, they went here, they went there. 
But other times, he says, we. So there are these curious we sections of the, of the, of the book of Acts. And what we know, not because he says, hey, I'm Luke, I'm here, I, I joined up with him, but we just assume that Luke is, dur- is there during those times. So if you look at uh, the book of Acts, and if you look at chapter 16 of the book of Acts, you will find that it switches from they to we. If you look at Acts chapter 16, and you look at verse 6, it says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then it says, if you keep reading, Paul saw the vision, and if you look at verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, what's it say? We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so they pick up Luke, and then they go to Asia, I'm sorry, to Macedonia from Asia Minor, and they go to the town of Philippi. And uh, we're not going to read through the entire chapter of Acts chapter 16, but it went fairly roughly for the missionaries there in Philippi. Uh, there wasn't a Jewish synagogue. If you've read the, the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see that Paul's normal way of operating was to go and to find a Jewish synagogue, attend the Jewish synagogue, and when he, as a traveling teacher, got the opportunity to speak, he would stand up and he would preach the gospel. But there wasn't a Jewish synagogue because there weren't enough Jewish men to form a synagogue. But he heard that there was a meeting place uh, outside the town where they would gather for prayer. And so he gathered with these Jews and also God-fearers. And if you see in, the, in, the, in Acts, somebody who is a God-fearer is a Gentile, a non-Jew, who is sympathetic to the Jewish faith. So they're believers, but they haven't gone all the way to become a convert to Judaism. So the men haven't been circumcised, and the women haven't been received as Jews, but they're God-fearers. And it turns out that in this meeting place, there was a woman. We don't know if she was uh, widowed, if she was divorced, but it seemed like she was by herself as a woman, the head of her household, and her name was Lydia. And it says that God opened Lydia's heart to believe. And so right then and there, Paul baptized her. And so things were going fairly well. At least there was one convert, uh, Lydia, and she had children. And her whole family was baptized at that time. And then there was this girl that was causing problems for the missionaries. She was a soothsayer. She was one who who uh, uh, practiced divination. She was the one who told fortunes, a fortune teller. And she was walking around. She was dogging the heels of the missionaries and, and saying that, that they're here to, to preach to you and so on and this and that. And Paul got tired of it and he turned around and he said, and she, had a, she had an evil spirit and Paul said, evil spirit, be gone. And the evil spirit was gone. But that was economically disadvantageous to the owners because they made a lot of money off of her. And so, they raised an uproar. They got Paul and Silas, who were the, the, uh, they were the leaders and the obvious preachers and leaders. But who else was there? 
Timothy was there as a junior partner, and also Luke, but it didn't look like he was necessarily playing too big a role yet. And so they grabbed the two leaders, Paul and Silas, they beat them, and they threw them into prison. And they put them in the deepest part of the prison, locked them up in stocks, and at midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what anybody would do, having been beaten and thrown into prison unjustly. They were singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening. And then, come along midnight, there was an earthquake. And the doors of the prison opened. The prison warden came rushing in, calling for lights. He thought the prisoners had escaped, and I don't know why they didn't myself. Maybe they were, they were thrown to the ground. Maybe they were so astounded at what was going on, they didn't think to escape. But I don't know why they didn't escape. But he was about to take his own life. Why? Well, that's what would have happened to him anyway. He was responsible for these prisoners, and if they had escaped, it was his life for theirs, and he was going to go ahead and get it over with and take his own life. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. So he brings Paul out, and he's trembling now, and he says, what must I do to be saved? What's the answer? What did Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so, that very night, uh, the man and his whole family, they were all baptized. So, it's going pretty well, right? Two converts at least. We have Lydia and her family. We have the jailer and his family. But Paul and Silas aren't exactly the most popular folk in town. And the authorities send messengers the next morning and say, Okay, you can leave. And Paul says, Whoa, wait a minute. I'm a Roman citizen. And you beat me publicly. And you threw me in the prison without due process. And now you come and you want to dismiss us secretly? No way. If you want us to leave, you come yourself. You go tell the authorities to come themselves and talk to us. And they realized that they had, that they had made a huge mistake by treating a Roman citizen that way. And so Paul pulled this card out and surprised them with this and shocked them with this. And then they came and they were afraid and said, Hey, would you please leave our city? And Paul took his time and he eventually left the city. And we think he left Luke behind. Let's pick up the narrative. Okay, the Philippian jailer is converted. Verse 25 Uh, The magistrates come, verse 35. Um, The magistrates uh, come and they were afraid, verse 38. They heard that they were a Roman citizen. They came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. And now verse 40, what's it say? So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. And then chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. What just happened there? There was a switch, right? From first person plural, we, we went to Philippi. And now what's Luke saying? They. 
What do we assume happened? Luke stayed. It looks like Luke stayed. Okay? So where are we here? Um, Paul goes on, and he goes to Thessalonica. And uh, he was there preaching for a couple of weeks, and he then had a hard time in Thessalonica. They drove him out of there as well. But do you know what the Philippians did when he was in Thessalonica? And we're talking about brand new converts. We're talking about those who had been in the faith for a matter of a couple of weeks. They sent missionary support to Paul when he was in Thessalonica. Well, Paul gets driven out of there. He goes to Berea. And then the uh, opponents from Thessalonica come to Berea and they stir up the crowds against them there. And so they move on from Berea and they uh, go to Athens. Well, actually, Paul goes on to Athens. And when, um, when Paul was in Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Because he was concerned about the converts in Thessalonica because he left them in a really bad strait. He comes into town, he's there for a couple of weeks, he gets a church going, he gets driven out, and the people are furious with these new Christians. And he's concerned. He says, what have I left these people with? I've left these poor new converts at the mercy of this, this mob that's actually going from town to town trying to persecute Christians. And see, he was very concerned about them. Read First Thessalonians and you'll see that Paul was distraught over the situation of the Thessalonians. And so he sent Timothy back in. Couldn't send Luke back in because it looks like Luke was still there. He could send Timothy back in because Timothy was the helper. He was the junior partner. He could probably sneak back in and not raise a lot of attention. And he could find out what was going on. We don't know if he went to Philippi as well. But I'm guessing that he did when he went back in on this reconnaissance trip, sort of undercover to see how the Thessalonians were doing. I'm guessing that he went back to Philippi as well. Why am I guessing that? Because we will see later on in this letter of Paul to the Philippians that they loved Timothy. They loved Timothy. And that love probably didn't grow in those few days. It probably wasn't born just in those few days when he was there and Paul and Silas were doing everything and getting beaten and thrown in prison and so on. It looks like that there were subsequent contacts between Timothy and the Philippian church. Well, um, Paul then, where do we have it? So the Philippians send a donation uh, when he's in Thessalonica. From Athens, Paul sends Timothy back. And then they go on to Corinth. And guess what the Philippians did? Again, they sent more money. Now, it looks like Lydia was fairly prosperous. She was a businesswoman, so she might have been the one who was really behind this. But this is a tiny, tiny new church. How many times have they already sent contributions for Paul's ministry? Twice. Immediately in Thessalonica. And now they've done it again when he's in Corinth. Now, that is the first visit of Paul. And we're talking about 51 AD. And the second visit was what uh, during what we call Paul's third missionary journey. Now, uh, Paul, you see how this is traced, starts in Antioch. And what he does is he retraces his steps 
and goes back through the same places and eventually ends up in Jerusalem. So here he wasn't breaking that much new ground. He was retracing his steps, strengthening the churches, and he had two main reasons uh, to do this third missionary journey. And the two main reasons were this, or these. One was because some people had begun to stir, had begun to stir up theological problems. You see, they, the, the Jewish disciples had not really caught on at the beginning that Jesus wanted to win the world, that he wanted the world to believe in him. They had this idea that he had come as the Jewish Messiah, and they really weren't getting the idea that non-Jews were welcome. You see, today, sometimes people ask the question, can a Jewish person be a Christian? But you see, the original question, question was, can a non-Jewish person be a Christian? Is that even possible? Well, Peter had this experience when he went to uh, Cornelius' house, and he realized Philip was ahead of the curve. The curve. Philip was the one who was preaching to the Gentiles before, before even Peter was getting the idea. And, and par excellence, uh, Paul was the, the missionary to the Gentiles. But now, these original disciples, these Jewish disciples, these faithful Jews who are now Christians, they're getting overwhelmed because most of the churches are no longer Jewish. Most of the churches are these Gentiles. These Gentiles were pouring in. Well, that was something of a problem. Uh, the, uh, what's going to happen to the neighborhood with all these, these Gentiles here? What's going to happen to our church with all these non-Jewish people pouring in? And so some Jews said, no, we can't let this happen so easily. They need to be Jews. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow the Jewish diet. They need to follow the Jewish calendar. They need to follow our ceremonies in order for them to be real Christians. So there was this, this controversy that was taken back to the church in Jerusalem. And the elders met and the apostles met and they said, No, we believe that they're saved in the same way that we're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. However, for practical reasons, the Gentiles should respect the Jews and they should avoid practices that are repugnant to Jews so that Jews and Gentiles can worship together and so the Jews and Gentiles can eat together at the potluck suppers. Okay? So, Paul, that was one of the reasons to uh, combat the Judaizers. The Judaizers. The other reason was this, and this takes a, a fairly prominent role in, in Paul's ministry, uh, one that I'm appreciating more and more. There, there, there was a famine in Judea. And so the Jewish believers had fallen on hard times. And uh, some of these Gentile churches were fairly prosperous. And so Paul was going around and saying, Gentile brethren, the, the ones who sent the gospel to you are now suffering. And, and they need help. And so he went around collecting an offering so that he could take it back to those who were suffering in Judea. So... That, those were the two main reasons he was retracing his steps. And so, uh, Paul comes to Macedonia twice. And twice because he set up a base of operations in Ephesus. Oh, 
by the way, Ephesus is in the province of Asia. Do you remember how Paul was not allowed to go into the province of Asia before? The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. That's why they crossed over into what we call Europe and preached the gospel in, in, uh, in Macedonia and then in what we call Greece or Achaia. Well, this time, guess what? The Holy Spirit let him stay there and he set up shop in Ephesus for about 18 months. I think it was 18 months. And... Or am I getting that wrong? I'll have to check that. If it's 18 months there or it's 18 months, I think it was 18 months in Corinth. I'll have to check the time span. Um, no, that might have been three years in Ephesus, but, um, but that was his base of operations. And he said all of Asia, all of Asia was evangelized during that time. But then there was a riot there in Ephesus. Once again, he messed up the economy. Yeah, um, the silversmiths were mad because people were no longer buying their idols and worshiping their idols. The Christ, there were so many Christians there that they, they were having trouble economically. They stirred up this riot, and so Paul, Paul left town. And then he went to retrace uh, his steps through, through what is uh, Macedonia and Achaia. And he went through uh, Macedonia once on the way, got to Corinth, turned around, and went back. So he went visited twice more, but very briefly. So those, as far as we know, are Paul's three visits to the city of Philippi. Now, um, the Macedonians, they too had fallen on hard times. But guess what? They insisted. When they heard that Paul was collecting an offering for the Jews, the Jewish Christians, they said, please, please, let us participate in this offering. So the Philippians had given at least three times to Paul's ministry, probably more, and then when they heard about this, they said, Paul, don't let us be left out. We want to participate as well. Now, this is 56 A.D. Well, uh, Paul continues on his journey. He goes back to Jerusalem. He hands over the offering. And then he gets arrested. And then he gets put in jail. And then... He gets, he languishes in prison in Caesarea for a couple of years, and then he gets his back to the wall, and he has to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen because he was about to get handed over illegally to those who wanted to take his life. And so he had to appeal to Caesar, and, and they said, well, we don't really have a charge, but we'll send you to Caesar if you want to go to Caesar. So Paul gets sent to Rome. And he had a few mishaps on the way, things like shipwrecks and so on, but he eventually gets to Rome. And now we get to the Philippian correspondence. So, um, delivering the donations, Paul was arrested, remained in prison two years in Caesarea, many mishaps. He eventually made it to Rome about 60 AD. So, the first time he got to Philippi, what year was it? Do you recall? 51. So we're talking almost a decade later. So about nine years later, he goes to Rome. And the Philippians learned of his situation. And guess what they learned? They decided to do. Send aid. Those Philippians, they heard he was in Rome. And they said, we want to help. We want to help. And that was not a close. It's not close to, to get from upper Greece all the way to Rome in those days. But they said, we want to do what we can. And so what they did was they sent their gift with one of their own. And his name was Epaphroditus. He was from Philippi. And so they, they gathered their generous offering and they sent it with Epaphroditus. Well, 
um, they wanted to, him to stay there. So they wanted him to be their minister, their helper to Paul. And they asked that Timothy be sent back. Because they knew Timothy was with Paul. And they said, Paul, we're going to give you Epaphroditus. He's our man to take care of you. But would you please, we know that you can't come, but would you please send Timothy uh, back to minister to us? And Epaphroditus, on the way, he fell seriously ill. And he almost lost his life. He almost died. And the news of his sickness got back to the Philippians. And the Philippians were very concerned about Epaphroditus, but they're also concerned about, they were trying to minister to Paul, but their emissary, it looked like he may not make it. And so, Epaphroditus falls ill, news gets back, but eventually he made it. And as they're talking about Philippi, he, he told Paul that, well, there's some problems in Philippi. There's some difficulties in the church there. And uh, so Paul found out about some of these problems there. And so what Paul does, once Epaphroditus is well enough, Paul, instead of sending Timothy back like they requested, Paul sends Epaphroditus back. And he sends Epaphroditus back with a letter in hand. And what's that letter? It's the letter that we call the letter to the Philippians. That he wrote, let's say, ten years after his first visit. Now, why did he write the letter? He wrote the letter with at least these these three purposes in mind. He wrote the letter to address the problems in the church. And we will find through the letter that he's addressing these problems in the church. He also wrote the letter to explain why he sent Epaphroditus back and not Timothy. You can imagine their disappointment. They sent Epaphroditus, and he was supposed to stay there. And they wanted Timothy to come back. But guess who shows up? Epaphroditus. And you can imagine their disappointment, and perhaps maybe a little bit of, maybe even irritation with Epaphroditus. Wait, didn't we send you to stay there? Didn't we ask you to get there and to ask uh, ask Timothy to take your place and come back? What's going on, Epaphroditus? And so Paul needs to explain why he sent Epaphroditus back and not Timothy. And the third reason is to thank the Philippians for their gift or their gifts. We'll find that Paul mentions, and he mentions this at the end of the letter. So really, a big purpose of this letter is a thank you note to the missionary supporters. And I understand this. We were missionaries for a long time, and we had very wonderful, generous churches and individuals that supported us for almost three decades as missionaries. And when I read Paul's thank you letter, I wrote many thank you letters, and I understand the depth of gratitude that Paul had for such generous folk. Well, that's an introduction. Ready to get to the letter? Okay, here they are, verses 1 and 2. And when I study the Bible... Uh, what I try to do is diagram it. I try to diagram because I want to understand the structure of the text in front of me. I want to understand the parts of it and how they relate to each other or the syntax of, of, the, uh, of the, the text. And so uh, what I look for are the main clauses and then I look for the subordinate clauses. And so if, uh, if I've done a decent job with this, The main point of these two verses is Paul and Timothy to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, grace to you and peace. So we have the authors of the letter, we have the recipients of the letter and their location, 
and we have the initial blessing. Now, it's not likely that we normally spend a great deal of time on the introductions to letters. We probably don't even send many letters anymore. We don't, we don't write many letters. We don't receive many letters. We mostly get junk mail in the mail. But when we have, whenever we receive a letter, what do we do? We look at the return address, don't we? And that's kind of how we treat these introductions. Okay, it's from Paul Timothy. It's to the Philippians. Let's move on. But if we will do what we're going to do today and try to dig into this, we will find some hidden gems. And what we find particularly in this and in some other letters, but very strikingly in this introduction, we find that there are previews of coming attractions. What Paul does here is he, uh, he telegraphs his punch. If you know about boxing, you don't want to telegraph your punch. You don't want to give an indication of where you're going with your punch. That's telegraphing it. He telegraphs his punches here. What he does is he, in a subtle way, introduces some of the main themes of this letter. So let's look at this, the authors. Paul was the primary author. Uh, it's written, the, the, the entire letter is written in first person singular. So he doesn't write it, unlike 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is mostly written in first person plural. So 1 Thessalonians looked like it, it was a joint effort between Paul and Silas. And then sometimes Paul breaks in and says, I, Paul. But here it's written in first person singular, so we know that Paul was really the author of this letter. But because of the affection about which we're going to learn, the great affection between Timothy and the Philippians, Timothy is included in this as well. And he was also with Paul in Rome when he wrote this letter. Now, um, they identified themselves, as you'll notice here, as servants of Christ Jesus. This is remarkable. Only in the Macedonian correspondence and the churches uh, to which we have letters that are preserved that are in Macedonia, were in Macedonia, are only two. There were other churches in Macedonia, but we only have letters to two of them. We have letters to the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, and we have this letter to the Philippians. That's the Macedonian correspondence. Only in these three letters plus the little letter to Philemon, which was a very personal letter to to Paul's friend, only in those four letters does Paul not identify himself as an apostle. Only in these four letters. Only to the Macedonians and only to, uh, to Philemon. Now, why not? Well, as we read about how he writes to these churches we realize that he had a very, very special relationship with these churches. And so it would be very odd for him to pull out his titles uh, when he's writing to these churches. If I were to write a letter, which I do, if I were to write a letter or post on the Facebook wall of... uh, Christ the Redeemer Church in Guadalajara. I was the founding pastor. I was the pastor for 20 years. And if I were to write them and say, this is Reverend Larry Trotter, that would be terribly out of place. One, no one ever called me Reverend there. Uh, Everybody called me Larry or maybe Pastor Larry. but, But if I were to pull out titles, that would be very awkward and very uncomfortable. It would be very unnecessary. It would be putting distance. And because of the the relationship they had, Paul didn't do that. 
However, there's also another reason. Um, the other reason is this. Um, the designation of servant or slaves, which is douloi, introduced a main theme of this letter. We are going to come across this word servant or slave once more in this letter. And I'll tell you where it is. It's in chapter 2, verse 7 of Philippians. And we'll get to this later, of course, but I'm trying to show you how this, this introduction is a preview of coming attractions. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, in this wonderful hymn, it says, uh, emptied himself, this is talking about Jesus, by taking the form of a servant. And so Paul introduces this theme of servanthood, of slavehood, and he applies it to himself and to Timothy because soon he's going to say something even more shocking, that Jesus took the form of a doulos. He took the form of a servant, of a slave. So this is not a, this is not a throwaway introduction here. He's giving us a preview of coming attractions. Now, well, let's see, we have about five minutes. Um, we may not even cover these two verses completely. Maybe we can cover verse 1. He called the Philippians, he called them saints or holy ones. Now that was a characteristic name in the New Testament, not for a superior class of Christians, it was a name for Christians. And it had two designations, or two references, we could say. Um, saints or holy, holy, holy ones. Sainthood had a definitive reference and a progressive reference. Definitive meaning one time, once and for all. Now, the definitive aspect of being a saint is the root idea of holiness or of sanctity or of sainthood is being set apart, being set apart, designated for God. So what is a saint? Uh, it's somebody who definitively, once and for all time, has been set apart unto God. Sainthood also has a progressive aspect to it. And that is growth in holiness. So someone who is set apart for God is also one who grows throughout his or her whole life in sanctity. Now when we talk about, we're going to talk about the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification has these two aspects to it. Uh, there is definitive sanctification. When we first place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are definitively, once and all, once for all time, set apart unto God as His holy people. But we may not be that holy in our behavior yet. And when we first come to faith, we certainly aren't. And so it seems like a misnomer to be calling us saints. But that's where progressive sanctification comes in. The process during our whole life using the means of grace that God has given us, His Word, prayer, the sacraments, so that we might become more and more holy in our behavior. This is the primary focus of 
the letter to the Philippians, theologically speaking. Now, there is a wonderful section on what we'll call justification. That's an amazing description of the doctrine of justification. But the focus here is really on growth in holiness. You have been set apart to God unto holiness, therefore grow in holiness. And uh, we will see that sometimes Paul refers to salvation... And what he's referring to, at least in one specific instance, when he says salvation, he's referring to sanctification. That is, growth in holiness. Let me give you a, a one verse over which we sometimes stumble to give you uh, the idea of what I'm saying. Um, chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whoa, wait a minute. If we know something about salvation, don't we know from Paul that salvation is a gift of God received by His grace alone, received by faith alone? What is this? Paul saying to us, work out your salvation? Has he changed tracks? But if we realize that the focus when he talks about salvation is sanctification, well, sanctification is not completely passive. It's the work of God, but we participate by submitting ourselves to God's work as He has expressed Himself through the means of grace. So now it makes sense. So we don't need to become alarmed and say, Paul, what do you mean work out your salvation? What he's saying is work out your sanctification. And since sanctification is a chief theme of this letter, he identifies them as... Saints. You're saints, so let's get on with it. There's some problems in the church. Well, you need to get on with the work of sanctification in these areas in which you are acting as less than holy. Okay. Um, Paul emphasized, in addition to their sainthood, are we okay with those two aspects of sainthood? Definitive, once for all, progressive. This is making sense, and we'll see this as we go through the letter. But uh, one's an identity, and one is a journey. One is who we are, and the other is the process in which we are. Now, he identifies the two locations of the believers. And he uses it, these two prepositions here, in and at. So where are the believers? They're in two places. Where's the first place? They're in Christ Jesus. And what's the second place? They're at Philippi. Okay. And uh, once again, Paul is, he is gesturing at and preparing the way for a theme in this letter. And one of the themes in this letter is this. Who you are, Philippians. He's already told the Philippians who they are and who we are. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, what are we? We are... Saints, and it says where we are, we are eternally in Christ Jesus. This is one of the, the primary doctrines that we find in Paul, Paul's letters, union with Christ. That we are in Christ by faith. And by the way, the, the expression believe in Christ, um, in, in Greek, just as in English, there are two prepositions that uh, are sometimes translated in. One is in, and the other is into. Oftentimes, uh, when the expression believe in Christ in the New Testament, it's the into. 
We believe into Christ. How do we get into Christ? Well, through faith. And once we have faith, where are we? We are in Christ. That is eternally contemplated before God in Christ. So that we are never by ourselves. We are never naked before God. We are never alone before God. When God contemplates those who are believers in Christ, how does He contemplate us? Where are we? We are in Christ. We are in His beloved Son. Therefore, we have all the benefits that the beloved Son has as well. Now, um, where else are we? Well, they happen to be in a place called Philippi. You happen to be in a place called John Knox Village. I happen to live in a place called Lauderdale by the Sea, but I've lived in Guadalajara and Mexico City, and I'm sure you've lived in many, many other places. That changes, doesn't it? We've lived in a number of different places, but one thing doesn't change, and this is a theme of the letter. No matter where you are, saints, no matter where you are, where you happen to be living, if you're in a prison in Rome, if you're a prison in Caesarea, if you're evangelizing in Corinth, wherever you might be, if you're staying home in Philippi, wherever you are, remember who you are, that you are saints located eternally in Christ Jesus. Now, you can see, for example, in chapter 3, verse 20, 3 verse 20, this theme comes out. Paul says here, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how he's saying who we are? You're in Philippi, I'm in Rome, but where, where's our real passport? Where, where's our real identity paper? It's in heaven. And that's our identity that never changes. Well, the time has come. That's not a bad place to end, is it? Who are you, villagers? Where are you? Well, for now, you're in John Knox Village. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, who are you when you're here in John Knox Village or wherever you might be on this earth? Where are you? In Christ Jesus. Saints set apart unto Him. Well, we almost got through one verse. We'll get to the overseers and deacons, Lord willing, next week. Let me pray so we can conclude this afternoon. Father, thank You, thank You so much for the identity of believers that You have put us eternally from before the beginning of time. You have put us in Christ Jesus so that wherever we go on this earth, wherever we might be, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we are saints, Your holy ones, in Christ Jesus. And we pray that as we study this wonderful letter together, that in your providence has been passed from hand to hand and generation to generation so that it came even to us that we might be sanctified, increasingly growing in likeness to Christ so that we might live out our citizenship, our heavenly citizenship in any circumstance in which we find ourselves here unto your glory and unto the salvation of others and the coming of Christ's kingdom. In whose name we pray. Amen.